The most important thing we can do this morning is change your mind about one thing. Christianity is not an idea. It's not a theory. It's not an option. It's not something you can do. Christianity is a man. Jesus the Christ. He, risen from the dead, is his own religion. And everything that he does from that reality 2,000 years ago to be the one man who has conquered death is actually good news for the world. But if you want into a game of want to get into a game of I'm not sure and I don't know and what about this and what about that, at a certain point, your scoffing, your skepticism will make you unable to see what is evident. Which again is that Christianity is not a theory like all the other religions of the world. Try it. See if it works. That's what they say. There's no try it with Christianity. He is risen. Alleluia. It's a fact. It's an event. It's in the past. It is finished. Changing your mind about that idea that Christianity is not an idea is one of the most important things you can do as a modern Christian. To remember that unlike everything else that again is a sales pitch, your religion is a kingdom. A kingdom with a king who's not dead. We tried to kill him. It didn't work. He came back. He said, I knew it was going to happen. I did it because you're a bunch of jerks, but I want to save you anyway. And my kingdom then extends as far as anyone who wants it. The only ones who don't get to come into my kingdom are those who don't want to. And Christianity has been on the ground ever since, shouting, he is risen. Alleluia. But in these gray and latter days, it is hard to believe, is it not? There are so many other stories out there. Fears, trials, suffering, of course. Boredom, though, perhaps is the greatest threat to us these days. Boredom with the king who says, I've conquered death. Boredom with the Lord who says, not everyone knows this yet, but you do. I'm going to make sure you know it no matter what. Boredom with this. That's our sin. Boredom. The Israelites weren't bored. As slaves in Egypt, making bricks without straw for their clay. But neither did they really want God to save them. When he came and tried to, they complained about it the entire way. It wasn't until the Egyptians were putting gold and silver on them and saying, leave, please, that they finally did. Of course, if you remember this story, they don't get too far before Pharaoh, who has been a bit against this leaving the whole time, changes his mind again. Gets all of his armies, all of his chariots, the greatest armies in the ancient world, unless you want to have him fight Assyria. And it was always a back and forth between the two. So the greatest armies in the ancient world, with their chariots and horsemen, coming down upon this slave people with some oxen and some sheep and a bunch of gold. And they're stuck up against a big waterway called the Red Sea. You can check out. It's huge. It's a sea. It's not an ocean. It's a sea. Seas are big. They're up against this sea, and they're led by this guy Moses with a staff, and he's done some things with this staff. He's made it turn into a snake, and he's made some water turn into blood and made the flies and the frogs fall from the sky. Well, that's all interesting, but what are you going to do against those horses? He lifts his staff up. And, I mean, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. The water splits in half in the ocean, right, in the sea, and it's walls on either side. The only thing I've ever seen that demonstrates this is a cartoon called The Prince of Egypt. And while they're walking through with these walls on the side, there's a lightning flash, and you see a whale swimming behind the wall. 
That kind of gives you the idea. That's the, that's the kind of radical thing this was. The liberal scholars in the 1800s, you know what they wanted to say? They wanted to say, oh, it got windy and there was maybe a land bridge. They didn't realize there was a drought. Like that's the way they talk about this. Eventually, they moved it up north to a place called the Sea of Reeds, which is like a marsh. Because they couldn't believe, they can't believe that he is risen. Right. So we have to believe all of the Old Testament because he's risen. Okay, you see that? And that means then they go through the water on dry ground with the walls of water on the side. And Pharaoh's horsemen and chariots come in behind on dry ground or so they think. And yet it turns to mud as they get into it. And then Moses finally lowers his staff. You know this, right? The waters come crushing down. The whole army is destroyed. And now let's take it out of the cartoon on the nursery room wall for a second. You know, Noah's Ark with all the animals in the rainbow. Minus the bodies that would have been in the water from the flood. And here you have it again. Water coming down. Kaboom! Horses, men, body parts everywhere. It's washing up on the seashore at the feet of your children. I will sing to Jesus Christ for he has triumphed gloriously, they say. The last 150, 200 years has been busy trying to talk about how awful God is. How awful he is that he would do things like destroy Pharaoh and his chariots. How could he do that to them? Remember, this is the same Pharaoh who's throwing babies into a river, you know, enslaving people and beating them until they do what they want. And those people have escaped and now God put down their conquerors. Not so much a how dare he, is it? Wouldn't you rejoice? I think you would. And then this is it. So everything that this is about. Crossing the Red Sea, standing triumphant on the other side. Zoom immediately to Jesus and death. The real sea we can't get across, the real ocean that's our problem is death. And Jesus went across it. He came out the other side. He says, I know the way. I have the keys to death and Hades. So this song, seeing those dead Egyptians, didn't see those dead Egyptians. They saw the devil and the devil's angels. And all the wicked men who want to align themselves with the devil and end up in hell, well, okay then. And they sang about how good it is to be saved from wicked people who'd rather go to hell. And again, hear it as your Easter song. Hear it as Christ over the grave. I will sing to Jesus Christ for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Jesus Christ is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. And I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Now don't miss verse 3. Jesus Christ is a man of war. Jesus Christ is his name. Let's, let's slow down there. Okay, first, I'm doing the most radical thing I'm going to do all morning by just saying the name Jesus Christ wherever the Old Testament has the word the Lord. Why am I doing that? I think we need to do that. I think we need to start doing that. You need to do it when you're reading the Bible at home. Why? Well, did you catch how it says the Lord is his name? Well, the Lord is not his name. The Lord is the word Adonai. It just means Lord or king like that. And sometime before Jesus showed up, after they stopped having prophets, the Jews decided to stop saying the name Yahweh, sometimes Jehovah, and say instead, the Lord, out of piety. They never wanted to mention God's name. They weren't holy enough to do so. I don't think that's a good argument, but that's what happened. And so the Lord became the common vernacular, which the Greek New Testament world, the apostles just 
take and say Jesus is Lord. They're taking that from the translations of the Old Testament, but the name that's in the Hebrew in the Old Testament is not Lord. And if you get down to it, it's four letters that nobody knows how to pronounce. They are probably out of the, the, the word to be. So the name sort of means I am, which you might have heard in other places similarly. But then that name, Yahweh is probably the best pronunciation. That name becomes part of the names and speaking of the Hebrew culture. So his name is in a lot of other names that are Hebrew names. My name, Jonathan. Nathan is the Hebrew word for gift. Yah, Yahweh is just Yahweh's gift. I've always liked being named God's gift. I thought that was a nice name to have. But the point here again is to see that that name, Yah, right, is the name of God. We'll just do one more tangent here and show that. The name Joshua, which is Jesus' name spoken in Hebrew, works the same way. Only instead of being God's gift, which of course he is, he is the Lord saves or Yahweh saves. So whenever you say the name of Jesus, you're saying this name that's here hidden in the Old Testament. The Lord, the Lord. You're saying when you say Jesus, Yahweh saves me. So that's a good thing right there, right? Now, Jesus then is his name now. Of old to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he spoke in many ways. But now he has declared that we are to know him through the name Jesus. That we should take and push back into all these texts so that you see again that Jesus Christ is a man of war. What does that mean? I thought war was bad, isn't it? Or is it? Now, don't get me wrong. Men shutting the blood of men is bad. And if you do it, you'll know. You'll know deep in your heart. You'll feel it right away. The Spirit doesn't let anybody get away with this. You can try to cover it. You can try to bury it. There is forgiveness for it. And in fact, men in the line of duty must shed blood. But that's a different thing from saying that bloodshed is good. And that's a different thing from saying that all war is necessarily bloodshed. Not all war is bloodshed. Most of all, war is about words. War is about ideas and understanding. No army goes to war without propaganda that convinces you to do so. Yeah? So in this then, what does it mean that Jesus Christ is a man of war? What it means is that he doesn't back down. He's not going to take no for an answer. He's going to do what he's going to do, and if you will not get out of his way, he will move you. Now, the good news in all of this is that as the king who would rather be gentle, he wants to move you to believe in grace. He wants to move you to believe in hope. He wants to move you to believe that everything that you are isn't enough, but he loves you anyway and is going to make you more. That's what the Holy Spirit does when he preaches to you that he is risen and that this means you're immortal now yourself. You're paid for. You're owned. You can't die. When you die, you're just going to be alive again. It'll be crazy and instantaneous. I haven't done it yet. I'm looking forward to it, believe it or not. It's kind of weird. But when you, when you figure it out, when you figure out that everything you don't like today is gone the moment Jesus returns, oh man, it's quite a prayer. It's quite a prayer. He is a man of war who will not back down on what he is going to do, which is save us. His war is against death and against the devil, not against mankind. He has become mankind so that he would not be against us. The ones who he will be against will be those who reject him. Again, those who don't want to believe. Pharaoh, who hardens his heart. I'm going to leave the rest of the text there. The end of it kind of just goes into the amazement 
at the floodwaters, not the floodwaters, the seawaters being split. It goes into poetry on that. I want to take a look, though, at Peter's talking in the book of Acts. Uh, this also has a pretty big context to it. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the details, but by this time, Saul is persecuting the church. Remember from our study in James during Lent that at this time, all of the apostles left Jerusalem. James was the only one who stayed, and he wasn't properly speaking an apostle. But so Peter and John and the other James, uh, all those guys are out in Judea, in Samaria, teaching, preaching, wherever the Lord leaves, leaves them. And Peter has ended up in Joppa at the house of a guy, oh, I forget, he's a tanner, I forget his name, a guy who we really don't know much about. But, you know, he's living by the sea, he's talking to people about Jesus every day, I don't know. And then inland, there's this guy who's not a Christian. He is not a Jew either. He's a Roman, which means... Technically, he was born into paganism. He was born into worshiping all the gods and powers that we can't see. Whatever we can come up with, we better make sure they're happy. So he was born into that life. Hinduism is the modern version of it. And, uh, and yet he had heard of the God of Israel. And so what this guy did was he got involved with the synagogue and the Jewish tradition in that area as what's called a God-fearer. A God-fearer. They couldn't become Jews, but they could hope in the God of Israel because the Old Testament Again, proclaimed that the, the salvation of the new land that they would get as children of Abraham and following the law of Moses, that that was for the world. It wasn't just for them, it's for everybody. Once they became the greatest nation in the world, everyone else is going to be blessed by it. Of course, again, that's what Jesus has done. Don't miss it. That's what Jesus has done. But Peter, excuse me, this gentleman, Cornelius is his name, uh, he is devout in his seeking of God through what he can find, which is, again, Judaism there. And he does everything he can do, gives alms. He's a really good man. He then is given something unique, something I don't expect you to get, a vision, a very particular vision. It's not a vision that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's not a vision that he should be baptized. It's a vision that he should send to the house of a guy who's a tanner and ask for Simon and have Simon come to him. God, couldn't you just tell me my, my, yourself? And yes, he, he could, but that's the point. He's not going to. The reign, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is not one of new visions. It's one of repeating, it is finished. He doesn't have to tell us anything else. It's done. He's king. We're waiting for him to come back, and we're trying not to lose this faith amongst the heathen while we do. Peter, meanwhile, is having his own challenge. Because there's this other issue that the whole book of Acts deals with. I won't go too deep on this here. But it has to do with how much of the Old Testament do we keep in the New Testament? How many of the sacrifices do we need to keep making? Or you probably know this, right? Do you need, as an adult male, to get circumcised if you convert? It's a tall order, by the way. So they're struggling with this. And what this means in terms of their relationship with all these other nations, all these other people groups that are not like them. They don't act like them. They don't smell like them. They don't talk like them. But Jesus died to save them. And now he's sending the apostles to them. How much do they say? What do they set limits on? And especially, well, Peter doesn't even want to go visit. Because the guy's too unclean. To go into his house means he can't go back to the temple in the right way. See, Peter doesn't even get what happened. He hasn't even understood the gospel yet. 
And so he gets a vision too. And you might remember this one. It's, it's the pigs in a blanket. Like, no kidding. There's the big blanket that comes down out of heaven. And it's got all these pigs and like snakes and snails and other stuff you're not supposed to eat if you're a Hebrew. And maybe anyway, it depends. You can argue about it. Um, snails, particularly. I'm, I'm not into it. Um, <laughs> but uh, all this unclean food, which for him was not about like, it doesn't taste good, which is what it would be for us. It was about, my religion says, I can't do this. If I do this, God hates me now. And God gives him this vision that says, don't call unclean what I have made clean. See that the resurrection of Jesus is a change in history. There was a witness to what he was going to do before he came, and now there is a witness after he came. Old Testament, New Testament, established in the mouth of two witnesses. As the Old Testament says, all things must be. Fascinating that. So again, the uncleanness that Peter believed he had to try to get rid of, Jesus declares to be done entirely. As, if you were here the other evening when we heard him talking about washing the disciples' feet, do you remember this? Peter says, don't wash my feet. Uh, and Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then he says, wash my heads and my hands and my whole body. And Jesus says, you're clean, you're clean. I've made you clean. And that's the key. Jesus makes you clean. Does that mean all your sin is gone? No. Does that mean all your pain is gone? No. All your frustrations? No. All your desire to do bad things? No. All your tendency to get mad fast, talk first and think about it later? No. That's all still here, but it's forgiven now. Jesus knows about it now and he's not kicking you out because of it now. He's going to keep sending me to tell you you're forgiven now because he is risen. He's risen indeed. Alleluia. And so Peter learns that this is for everybody. And so he goes to Cornelius and he preaches what we see here. I'm not going to go verse by verse through all of this this morning. What I do want to uh, emphasize here is how he does not go through, like a, if you're familiar with this, a Romans road, how do you convert somebody, a little sales pitch. He doesn't do uh, now law, now gospel, check the pulse, see what I should say next. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't even try to say, you guys should try this religion out. He just says, Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. All the prophets bear witness to this. I'm a witness of this. Now the text ends there. You know what happens next? He baptizes them. Why? Because that's the normal way salvation happens. You believe in Jesus, you get baptized, you confess Jesus before the people, you join in the feast of the sacrament, and you wait for Christ to return. The only time that that might not happen is if you baptize a baby and the baby doesn't already believe, but we don't have a word from God on that. So you're making stuff up if you withhold it from the baby, I would say. All the same, the idea is that baptism is there to tell you you have faith. To remind you, Jesus has chosen you for his kingdom. Can you walk out of his kingdom? Yes, you can. Are you going to? No, he's not going to let you. That's the kind of king he is. He is here to continually, patiently bear the cross. Put up with our lack of understanding. Say to his father, father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then feed you piece by piece like a child, like a sheep, only what you need, which is always more. He is risen. He is risen. Alleluia. There's a lot more I could say, but today is such a festival day. I don't want to belabor the text line by line. 
The Gospel of Luke, we heard two parts of it. There's, there's so much in this. The women going to the tomb first. And the fact that they don't believe the women. All of that is, is beautiful in its own way. And we live in a time of mass confusion when it comes to what a man is and what a woman is. Have you noticed that? We actually, we have no idea and you can get yelled at for being wrong, which is evidence of our shame culture. Christianity, by the way, doesn't believe in a shame culture. If we're going to do anything here in the next three years, we're going to work together on not shaming each other. So the rest of the world, they can shame themselves and we'll be the place where we're unashamed because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. The women were ignored because they were women. That's why they were ignored legally in the ancient world. Women were not able to be legal witnesses of anything. I mean, you could see it, but you talk about it, well, you're just being a foolish woman. Now, that's not Christianity. That's the ancient world. And I suggest to you, it's actually the way the world, the, it's the way the current egalitarian world works. It's not so much about woman or man until you get into one-on-one -on -one relationships, and then it's about bully and oppressed. And men, you know you're pretty good bullies. But ladies, you have your ways. You have your ways. Learning to trust is what man and woman lost in the fall. There's a good reason why God says you should not listen to the voice of your wife to Adam. There's also a good reason why he says through Solomon that a wife of noble character is worth more than rubies and gold. You can go the same way with the man. I mean, having a bad husband is no good for you, ladies, right? You know that. It shouldn't be hard to say these things. It shouldn't be hard to say we can be better than we are, and it shouldn't have to be a matter of our salvation. But because of this confusion that's going on right now, where what we learned way back in here has to be relearned again because Telling the story today, I wouldn't know if they were women or men. You would have to have some sort of Z or Zer or her thing going on. But why does he go to women first? There's a reason for this. It's because you're humans. It's because the idea that you can't be a witness is foolish. It's incomplete. Of course you can see something and tell the truth about what it is. But do notice this. Then when Jesus does send the preachers of this good news, the ambassadors to serve as his visible heads, he does not send the women. He sends the very guys who didn't believe the women <laughs> once they believe. Now, what does that mean? What it means is that Christ has not overturned man and woman. It's not all gone, which, again, the liberal churches have been preaching for uh, 50 years now. It's just all gone. Just, you aren't even a body anymore. You're whatever you want to be. It's kind of strange when people try to act like dogs. Have you seen it? It's out there. You can find it. What Christianity realized is that we go together really well. We go together really well. When the man is able to go out front, <laughs> as I fall, uh, bang his head on a thing or two, protect a little bit, get a thing done, turn around and everyone cheers. Hey, I'm a happy man. And the woman is able to watch out and care and make everything good and are we all content? When we see that those are different ways of being people, and they're both good, and together they make a family, we can begin forgiving each other for not being, well, exactly the same. Yeah. When he sends the women, he is insisting that women can believe, can confess, and should indeed prophesy. How do you prophesy? Not the way you think. 
you memorize a Bible verse and you say it in a timely way at the place where it really matters. Not so hard. He has risen. It's a pretty, pretty fast one to get. In any case, the women are able to do everything except be men. That's the only thing you can't do is be a man. And then when a man is the father of the house, well, then that means he's the father, the head of the house. It's not rocket science. It's not hatred. It's common sense, actually. Nature will teach you if you just watch. But all this said, the women are sent to make it clear, to make it clear that you are not less than man. You're not less than man. You're baptized sons of God with us. Are you the weaker vessel? Yes. Is that something to be ashamed of? No! You should be proud to be the weaker vessel. What does it mean to be on the cross but the weaker vessel? So embrace it, ladies, and see this here, the beauty. It's for you too. But then don't mess. Don't miss. You need men. You need men who will confess. You need men who will prophesy themselves, and you need men to preach. Now, with our time probably again drawing to a close, I want to go later in the Luke text and try to clean up something and bring us to the sacrament for our morning. So the way to do this is to get after verse 28 if you have it in front of you. And what I want you to see is that for for everything else that Jesus is doing, I mean, they don't know who he is. That's weird. He, He vanishes in the blink of an eye. That's super weird. Like, I would question whether he had actually been there if he did that to me. I'm like, I don't think I believe this thing anymore. I'm going crazy. They believe it. So That's a weird thing. But why do they believe it? Well, it's not the vanishing, and it's not even the showing up. It didn't take him being seen and known for them to believe the potential of the resurrection. Quite the opposite. They say, did not our hearts burn within us? This is verse 31. 32, excuse me. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? And there are entire cult denominations out there that put everything on this verse. And I've I've sat through their sales pitch. They walk out and they say, the Bible says that your hearts will burn within you when you hear the word of God. And whenever I listen to the testimony of Joseph Smith, I feel my heart burn within me. And so I know that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the one true church on earth. That's what they do with this verse. I don't believe any of that. I don't believe any of that. Um, I don't believe that a burning in your heart should be how you know whether or not something is true. Uh, It could be the bad food you've been eating. Uh, You know, uh, let the rest of the verse explain it to you. I stopped reading. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Your heart will burn within you when the scriptures are opened for you to believe them. What will you want? Just more of it. More of whatever it says. Keep going. That's what amen means when you shout it while I'm preaching. It means keep going. I haven't learned yet what you're supposed to say to shut me up. There's a way. There's a whole culture that does this. They have a whole style of preaching where you can talk to me while we're preaching with single words. I want to get us there eventually. He is risen. (laughs) Hallelujah. So if you shout amen, it means repeat yourself, Pastor. I know that much. Uh, There are other communities they do this. You You can imagine it. Yeah, we could get there. Not today. The hearts burn when you want more of what the scriptures say. Yeah? And then... When what the scriptures say bring you in Jesus' name to something unexpected. It's mentioned twice in the text. They do not see him even after he explains that the Christ must suffer, die, rise, Moses, all the prophets. They've got all of it there. He's sitting there talking. They don't see him. Till he does this thing that's a direct quote from earlier in the gospel. 
He took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. They get it. Upper room, night he was betrayed. Passover, he's the fulfillment. Lord's Supper, dear heavens, he's gone. Where'd he go? Now he left. They run back. They tell everybody. But what do they tell everybody? He walked with us on the road. I mean, maybe. The text says they told him how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Word and sacrament would be the jargon, right? The scriptures for you. And then this meal, according to his words, as it is a gift, to strengthen and sustain the heartbeat of your faith one more week waiting for the world to end. I, uh, I had a thought on Good Friday, and so I've tried to remind myself of this one uh, every, every day since. I thought maybe this is the last Good Friday service I'll ever get to go to. And I wasn't thinking about my death or about St. Paul closing. Uh, I, I was thinking about the end of the world. I want you to take that one with you right now. I mean, what if this is your last Lord's Supper? What if this is the last day? Wouldn't that be a thing? And if tomorrow it's not, that's okay. It'll be soon. In the name of Jesus, amen.